Welcome to the Nations Church Podcast. We hope this message blesses you. Across the last six months, God's been speaking to me about posture. Tell us someone to say posture. Posture. I'm not talking about like the way that you stand. How many of you know some people have like a sickeningly good postures? They just walk around like this around church. I'm not talking about that kind of posture. I'm talking about the posture of the heart, the inner man or the inner woman. It's your, your inner posture is your inner attitude. It's like your uh, inner approach or the way that you think towards something or someone. It is my genuinely be- genuine belief that the posture of your heart will actually drive the decisions of your life. If you want to know what the posture of a person's heart is, look at the choices they make and the decisions of their life. It's really important. When you think about your relationship with Jesus, you've got to understand that His desire for you is that you go deeper with Him. His desire for you is actually intimacy in relationship with Him. Do you understand that? That's His entire goal for you is that you walk deeply and closely with Him, that you encounter and experience His love and His grace. Therefore, the posture that you bring to that relationship determines if that is possible or not. You following me so far? Have you ever tried to make friends with someone or talk to someone and they were completely uninterested at all in having a conversation with you? That's my every Sunday at the Welcome Lounge. Like, you know, someone that, you know, you just, you want to engage in conversation with, that you want to make friends with, but they're completely uninterested at all because their posture towards you was not for you. Makes sense. One of my most treasured passages of Scripture is Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7 has three characters in it. One is a Pharisee by the name of Simon. I'll explain what a Pharisee is if you're not familiar in just a moment. Secondly is an unnamed, nameless, faceless woman. She is not named in Scripture, but she is labeled. They call her the sinful woman. And the third, obviously, most central character in this text in Luke chapter 7 is Jesus himself. We're going to read Luke chapter 7, verse 36. What she does is incredibly controversial. It says, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his I want you to picture this. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Thank you so much, Shang. Give Shang a big hand. It's an extraordinary account. And when you read a text like this, you've got to understand that there's a lot of gender sort of uh, nuances, social, cultural, religious nuances. Here we see this woman, she's labeled as a sinful woman. She tracks Jesus down and she makes an effort to be in the presence of Jesus. So this is what you need to understand. She goes and finds Jesus, finds where he is and makes an effort to be where he is. That's a prophetic lesson right there for somebody. If ever you have a theology that Jesus can meet you right where you are, particularly when you're watching Netflix on the couch, you need to understand sometimes we need to get up off that couch and enter into the presence of God. Now, you also need to understand that there is no way worse place for a woman that's been labeled by society as sinful or immoral to have found that Jesus, that she wants to encounter, that she wants to experience 
having lunch at a Pharisee's house. There's no worse place for a woman that has been so rejected by society by probably the most religious people at the time being the Pharisees. To find Jesus is having lunch at a Pharisee's house. Pharisees in Jesus' day were highly educated in religious studies. They understood the Talmud and the Torah. They could recite it backwards, frontwards, and all of that. And it's highly likely that this, this particular Pharisee, Simon, had invited Jesus to come into his house because he wanted to put Jesus in his place. What would this carpenter from Galilee know? Come on, are you out there? So this Pharisee wanted to not encounter Jesus, but to question him, to correct his theology, because, you know, all of this casting out demon stuff, all of this laying hands, all this miracle stuff out of your hand stuff, what is this? It's not found in the, Tal- in, the, in the Talmud or the Torah. He was trying to put Jesus back in his place because Jesus was messing up all of the religious customs of the day. You follow me so far? So this woman is now faced with a conundrum. So she's faced with a problem. Do I keep Whatever dignity I have left, because everyone's labeled me immoral or sinful, and walk away from this door and never encounter Jesus, or do I run the risk of facing humiliation, step through the threshold, lose whatever dignity I have, yet encounter the reality of Jesus? That was a conundrum that she was faced with. And this interaction in Luke chapter 7 was with two different people having the same access to Jesus, Two different postures, two different outcomes. Can we go there in scripture today? This message, I just feel prophetically as I was preparing for this, is going to lead to one of two different outcomes. It'll either draw you to respond to the invitation to encounter Jesus in a real way in this season of prayer and fasting, this season of encounter, or it's going to make you really mad at me. And if you're really mad at me, come the end of this message, and you want to email me, a complaint email, please, my email address is on the screen right now, go for it, um, you can take a picture of that, yk is a good boy at hotmail.com, go for it. Today I want to speak to you on the thought, the posture of encounter, humility. Who's ready for that today? The posture of encounter is humility. Right here, I've given you the spoiler. Because wherever I read scripture, whenever I see God doing something powerful in a person's life, there are some postures that are common to these encounters, certain attitudes of the heart that are common, vital even, for the way that, that, that opens the door for us to interact with God in a certain way. And one of the greatest postures of encountering God in scripture is humility. I want to suggest to you today, if you are proud, you can pretty much count out any chance of having an intimate relationship with Jesus. If your ego rules your life, you can pretty much count out any chance that you might have of an intimate encounter with Jesus. How many of you have ever tried to have a relationship with someone that's really proud? Well, it's the same thing in our spiritual walk. And here's the thing, there is not a single person on the planet, including myself, that would actually recognize that we're struggling with pride. Hello? Have you ever heard someone, and my wife occasionally does tell me, you're being a bit proud right now. The first response is, what? No, I'm not. But as we read the Word of God today, my prayer for us is that the Word of God will do the work. 
that, the, that the, you begin to begin to just, just allow the Word of God to run a searchlight on your posture, a searchlight through your heart. The posture of our heart is so vital in any relationship. Your heart posture drives your outward behavior, and if you have a heart posture of pride, it will cause you to do everything or behave in a way that is the antithesis to the posture of encounter that, that, that Jesus wants you to have in order to encounter Him. It's going to cause you to drive a wedge between you and Him. And so here is this woman in Luke chapter 7, she demonstrates a posture that so moved the heart of Jesus. The Pharisee, on the other hand, in Luke 7, demonstrated a posture that Jesus actually had to address and had to correct. When I read this text in Luke chapter 7, it so challenged my heart because I began to realize whenever I read texts like this and I see the way blind people interacted with Jesus, the way that I saw some people that were demon-possessed or tormented interacted with Jesus, the way lepers came to Jesus, the way, the way people that, that really felt that they needed an encounter with Jesus came to Him, I just realized that I'm actually at times really full of myself. How many of you sometimes feel like, God, really, you're really full of yourself? No, just me. Come on, we're meant to be full of the Holy Spirit. And yet sometimes we're so full of our stuff, our ideas, our, our, our ideologies, our theories, our opinions. I want to ask you today, do you live out your Christian faith in a way that constantly moves the heart of God towards you or moves you away from the heart of God? Do you have a posture that constantly draws you close to God or keeps God at a distance from you? Because there are certain hallmarks of this posture of encounter, humility, that I notice in the Bible. If humility is the posture that opens the door to your real, genuine encounter with Jesus, then we need to understand that, that humility sometimes comes with some convictions. Can we go through them today? Who's ready for the Word of God? Come on. I want to talk to you about just some convictions, some things, some ways of thinking around this posture of encounter called humility. And the first one is this. This first conviction around the posture of encounter when it comes to humility is this, that I care about what God thinks of me more than what people think of me. Come on now. When you have the posture of encounter, which is humility, a, a, a genuine foundational conviction is that I care about what God thinks of me more than what people think of me. Wasn't this what that sinful woman was doing? She cared far more about what Jesus thought of her than what the Pharisee thought of her. You can almost imagine the torment, the, the stifling pressure as she approached the door of the Pharisee's house, fully knowing that beyond the door was the Jesus she wanted to encounter, but also the Pharisee that would judge her. But her humility said to her, I care about what God thinks of me more than what people think of me. It was highly likely that it was the Pharisees that gave her the label of unclean, sinful woman, rejected. Come on. I want to suggest to you today that we are so conditioned by the world to care deeply about what people think, but we don't spare a thought at all about what God thinks. We care deeply about what people think, very deeply. We lose sleep when we hear that that person might have said something to that person about us that then told our auntie's cousin about us and then it came back to us. We lose sleep over that. Hello. Right? Right? But we don't spare a single thought about the behaviors daily that might break the heart of God. Oh, getting real now. I'm going to talk to this side because that side's going to write me an email to ykboyisagoodboy at hotmail.com. We care deeply about what people think of us. But we don't think twice about what God thinks of us. How many of you have ever been in a place where after a conversation, 
with someone that's probably a little bit sensitive, you thought, oh man, I hope I didn't come across the wrong way. Oh my gosh. How many of you ever felt that? And we lose sleep, we ruminate over that. Oh man, I hope we we were taken the wrong way. You know what I mean? But we run down the church. We criticize the church. Say stuff. Don't even lose any sleep about that. We care deeply about what people think. Don't care about what man thinks, about what God thinks. Sometimes we, do, we spend so much time trying to impress people. All those hours you spend in front of that mirror, doing your hair. For me, it's two seconds. We care about what people think of the way that we look, how we come across, what we post on social media, the image and the, and the reputations we maintain, the opinions and the, come on, are you out there? This woman didn't care about what the Pharisee thought. She only cared about what Jesus thought. That's the posture of encounter, of humility. Come on, I wanna be part of a church that says in this season, I don't care what man thinks, I care what God thinks. It matters in my heart what Jesus thinks of me. It matters, we, sometimes, we gotta stop and think about what matters to us. Imagine for a moment, dudes, imagine on your wedding day, all, 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 the, all the guys in this room, imagine on your wedding day, if your bride didn't want to hold your hand, leave it and give you a kiss on your wedding day because she was afraid of what people might think. And that's what we do as the bride of Christ all the time. In the Old Testament, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, there's an account of a king by the name of David. If you're unfamiliar with King David, he was the greatest king uh, that Israel had ever seen. And by the time we parachute into 2 Samuel chapter 6, David was a well-established king. Now, if there's anyone that had a public image to uphold, it was definitely a king. The crown has been on his head for years. Only at this time when we come into 2 Samuel chapter 6, David for his whole life had longed to be in and around the presence of God. Back in the Old Testament, the presence of God is not like now where it was confined to a temporal or a a structure that was movable. It was called the Ark of the Covenant. And so in the Old Testament, what happened was that the presence of God was confined as a foreshadow of things to come, which is right now. And this Ark was stolen by the Philistines. And so what David did was he had to fight some battles to win back the Ark of the Covenant and bring it back to the city of David, to the city of Jerusalem, so that the presence of God could come back to where he was king. Make sense to you guys? So it was a joyous day. It was a joyous day, but he so reverenced the Ark of the Covenant that it was, it was so much joy for him that every six paces he walked, he would stop, sacrifice, worship, dance. And by the time he comes into the city, there was so much dancing. He was probably so loose by then in the exuberance of being in the presence of God. He didn't care what people thought. He was half disrobed. Come on, because you can't dance with a heavy king's robe on your shoulders. Come on. So we thought, man, for me to do this, I just want to dance in the presence of God. He took off his king's robe. Now, the two characters in this story, one being King David, who had a reputation to protect, he, of, out of everyone, should have cared what people thought. And his wife, Micah, 2 Samuel chapter 6, says this, verse 20, when David returned home to bless his own family, because the presence of God had come back to the city, Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him. That's his wife. And she said in disgust, how distinguished the king of Israel looked today, shamelessly exposing himself to the servant girls like any vulgar person might do. They're all getting real quiet because it feels like we're about to eavesdrop on a domestic. It's like, like I don't want to listen, but I want to listen. <laughs> David retorted to Michael, I was dancing before the Lord who chose me above your father and all his family. He appointed me as the leader of Israel. 
the people of the Lord. So I celebrate before the Lord. You can see who he's concerned about. Yes, and I'm willing to look even more foolish than this, even to be humiliated in my own eyes. But those servant girls you mentioned will indeed think I am distinguished. So Michal, the daughter of Saul, remained childless throughout her life. Can you see the difference in the postures? Can you see the difference? Like right here is David. He couldn't care less what people thought of him. He cared entirely about what God thought of him. This posture of encounter, which is humility, is going to be the difference this season. Come on, church, between God getting a hold of you or you just being in proximity to him, but never really being transformed by him. You can be in the presence of God, but not have the presence of God have you. Come on, are you you out there? You can be in the presence of God, but not have the presence of God in you. Why? The difference is the difference of posture. The reason why the Bible is so full of people that do things that look silly in the natural is because the Bible is full of people that care so much more about what God thought and very little, come on, of what people thought. The Bible is full of crazy things like clapping, lifting hands, waving, jumping, leaping, dancing, twirling, taking off robes. It's all in the Bible. The Bible is full of people that couldn't give a rip about what people thought but they care deeply about what God thought. I'll tell you, the, the incredible people in the Bible that don't care what people thought, the people that play tambourines. <laughs> Clearly, if you play the tambourine, you don't care what people think. But there's people that play tambourines in the Bible. Let me encourage you, God is far more concerned about you burning hot for Him than looking cool for people. Come on. Isn't that a great tragedy that for a lot of Christians, our most liberated times is after we've had a few wines and we're at a wedding party reception when the DJ finally puts our favorite song on, I got a feeling, tonight's gonna be, that's when we're most liberated. The next day at church... You tell me who you're trying to please. You're, prou- you're proudful, prideful if you're most liberated. It's after a few beers at a wedding reception, but you can't even in the house of God manage to lift your hands. It matters to you what people think. If in the house of God, you can't even lift your hands or clap. But at the footy, you're going crazy. Come on. YK is a good boy at hotmail.com. Please write that email if you want to. I know I'm stirring you up today, but I'm trying to give you, I'm trying to disciple you into the posture that God wants, to have, wants you to have. There is something very special about having that, that conviction, the second conviction of the posture of encounter being humility is this, I'm way, willing to lay down my need to understand and control. That's a posture of encounter called humility. I'm willing to lay down my need to understand and control. If all that you're looking for is to first understand everything about God before you encounter Him, you will never encounter Him. What do you mean? (laughs) Well, pride will only accept what it can understand and control. Pride will always reject what makes no sense and where it feels like it has to relinquish control. Pride hates what it can't control. 
That's why so many people read the Bible and only accept what, it, what they can understand out of the Bible and then reject what, it can't, what they can't understand. They may, may decide, okay, there's lots of things happening in the Bible that are a little freaky, and I'm, I'm, I'm just going to let that pass through to the keeper, but I won't, I won't engage with that. And there have been entire branches of Christianity and movements that have been reformed with sections of the Bible that they can't understand, they can't rationalize, and they can't explain. They just kind of go, okay, well, that happened in the Bible, but it doesn't happen here anymore now. There are entire sections of Christianity that have decided, well, all that Holy Spirit stuff, because I can't understand it, we'll just leave that in the Bible and we accept that it's in the Bible, but it doesn't happen anymore now in this modern day and age. I want to say this to you, pride rejects what it can't understand. Humility says I can't understand some stuff, but I'm not going to allow what I don't understand to undermine what I do understand of God. Come on. This woman in Luke chapter 7 didn't understand mercy and grace, she just experienced it. David didn't understand why he was just, just feeling so charged and, and, and filled with the Holy Spirit. He started disrobing and dancing. He didn't understand, but he just did it because the presence of God did something in him. We can't control and understand why sometimes people get healed in the Bible and sometimes people in the Bible didn't get healed. We can't understand now why some people get healed, some other people don't. So we don't allow our pride to reject everything just because we can't understand it. Sometimes when I start to get a little bit too proud, I read Scriptures like Isaiah 55 verse 9, where it says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I get put right back in my place. What is Isaiah 55 verse 9 says? It says, Ken Lee, you are one of 7.888 billion people in the world. In other words, you are one pea brain out of almost 8 billion people. You try and think you can understand me? You try and think you can rationalize me? down to your little box of what you can understand as a 47-year-old man? Come on. Come on. Humility says, I'm going to encounter you, Jesus, in spite of what I don't understand. I don't get so much of what's going on right now, but I want to suggest to you today that you can't reform, explain, or study your way into an encounter with God. You have to surrender your way into it. And that's why I think so many people never get there. Sometimes I think that my intellect is the stumbling block to intimacy with God. But it's actually not. It's just the cobweb. The spider is my pride. My intellect is just the front. That was the, that was the Pharisee's issue, not the fact that he studied the Talmud and the Torah. It was the fact that he was too proud to do what the sinful woman did in his house. In his own house, an unclean woman showed him the posture he needed to have when he was having lunch with Jesus. Somebody needs to say a resounding amen today. So many of us never have a real and genuine encounter with Jesus because we're not willing to say, I'm willing to lay down my need to understand and control. I remember being in the early years of planning our church. It was 2004, 2005, 2006. I was only 29 years old when we planted our church and I had not gone to Bible college YK is a good boy at hotmail.com. That's why you emailed. I kind of did that retrospectively and across the 11 years of, first 11 years of our church and went back to seminary and studied. And, but it was in the early years of 2004, 5, and 6, and I wasn't very confident as a preacher. You know, our church was only new back then, and, uh, you know, I, I was the only barely staff member of our church, so I did everything. It was full, raising two kids. I wish I had all the hours to kind of study and, and, and you know, put great sermons together that were fantastic with all of the Greek and the Hebrew and all of those sorts of things, but I didn't. I was doing our best. We were running a setup and packed down, and it was just 
chaotic and hectic. There was a guy in our church at the time that fancied himself as a bit of a Bible scholar. And across those, about a three-year period, he was part of our church. And every Sunday when I preached, because there was, we, had no money to, we had no money to pay better preachers than me, it was it for me, for our church. Every Sunday he would come up to me and he would give me a score out of 10 <laughs> for what he thought about my sermon. And uh, across the three years, I reckon I would have been lucky to average 3.75 in his estimation of, and then he would proceed to tell me all the things I should have preached in order to get his 10 out of 10. We got along really well across the last, the, the three years that he was there. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, but he, that was what he would do. But the one thing that he hated the most about our church was the altar call time. He really hated it because in those early years, while I, obviously I'm not the man now, I'm not the man I used to be now, and uh, obviously don't, I know much more now than what I did then, but um, I remember those, those seasons where I was just learning as a, as a preacher, learning how to put sermons together, stressing, not very confident about what I preach. What I didn't know was this, if I could just disciple our church, to bring a posture of responsiveness and humility. And every Sunday, as simple as my sermons would be, our church, our little church, would have people just flooding the altar, weeping and countering God. And he hated it because he couldn't understand why. In fact, he said to me once, I don't understand why all these people are coming up crying when your sermon was so bad. Like he, could, he, just could not, he, could not, he could not fathom what was going on. Like, it's like, well, like he, he could, just could not fathom it. You know what pride makes us do? Pride makes us judge. Pride always makes us judge what we cannot understand. Humility will yield and embrace. Pride will always judge and scoff. If we have the posture of pride, then we'll always judge what we don't understand and can't control. And this is exactly what Simon the Pharisee did in Luke chapter 7. When, she, when this woman walks through the threshold of his house, sees the Pharisee, sees Jesus, she doesn't even look Jesus in the eye. She comes up behind him. And the Bible says that she has enough tears. Her eyes produced enough tears to wash Jesus' feet. You need to understand, this was not like a Mother's Day little teary thing when you see a video. A little dignified, you kind of just wipe away. This was an ugly cry. Have you ever ugly cried before? Seven of you, the rest of you dignified cry. Like This was like ugly crying. Right, And the Bible says that she wiped Jesus' feet with her hair. What made Simon the Pharisee so uncomfortable that he didn't understand, he couldn't control, suddenly the conversation changed, he was not in control of the conversation anymore. Hello, come on. She was showing him up by her posture. She stooped so low, it would have made him feel so uncomfortable. This immoral woman was bending down that low in front of him to wash Jesus' feet with her hair. Do you know how low you have to go to wash someone's feet with your hair? For me, I'd have no chance. In fact, I'd probably have to wash Jesus' feet with my eyebrows. Uh, it's all I got. I'm Asian as well. I don't have very much eyebrows. Like, it was funny in the early service. What made Simon judge her was not her theology, but her posture. It was her posture. Michael in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Think about being covenant with the king. She should have been dancing with him. Oh, you're getting real quiet now. I know some of your wives don't like to do the same things that your husband would do. Like just that's your thing. But when it came to the presence of God, she should have been dancing with him. 
David had taken the heavy robe off. It was probably inhibiting his movement. He was twirling around in his undergarment. She was all dressed up queenly-like from her balcony, judging him. Because what we don't understand makes us feel silly, and what we can't control makes us feel uncomfortable. So our pride judges it. We want our faith at times to be logical and controllable, and that's why man invented religion out of Christianity. We invented dogma. So now we judge anything that we don't understand within the framework of our religious tradition. It's time for Jesus to pull the Pharisee and the Michael out of the church and restore the King David. Come on, are you out there? And the sinful woman, Luke 7, back into the house of God. At conference this year and even throughout this season of encounter, if we find ourselves judging people because we're witnessing their postures of encounter and it's making us feel uncomfortable, can I suggest to us that maybe we're the problem and not them? See, when people come with a posture of humility, who knows what's going to happen? They don't know what's going to happen. If Jesus were to walk in the room right now, I don't know what you'll do. I can't control your behavior. My, my prayer for us is that if Jesus walks in the room, some of you are going to be on your face before his glory. Some of you are going to be crying. I don't know, right? But I don't want to be found to be the guy judging you while you're encountering Jesus. I want to be encountering Jesus with you. Someone needs to say amen. The Bible is full of people saying and doing undignified things whenever Jesus walked in the town. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Shut up, Bartimaeus. You're blind. Shh. Jesus, my son is tormented. Set him free. The Bible is full of lepers, sinful people, people that are considered dirty, adulterous people that all did undignified things. But you know what? It's time for the church to kind of say, hey, I don't want to sit in judgment. I want to be counted amongst them that encounter Jesus. Don't judge it. In an atmosphere of encounter, you're going to see people doing all sorts of, some people are going to be ugly crying. Fantastic, God's touching them. Demons are going to come out. Bodies are going to get set free and be healed. People are going to be dancing exuberantly. I don't want to stand on the ivory tower of my balcony being my cow. All judgy, yet barren. Because she could have, as David's wife, become his greatest ally, his greatest partner. She could have collabed with him on all of the Psalms that he wrote. Think of what David wrote. Psalm 51 verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me by your generous spirit. Michael could have co-written Psalms like this along with her husband, and yet the Bible says she did not because she judged out of her own pride. She was barren till the day she died. I don't want to be dignified in the house of God, but spiritually barren. Nothing to show the next generation. I want my kids to see a dad that might not have been the most polished dude. He may have been a little crazy sometimes, but he loved God with all his heart. I want to model to the next generation. You should too. You don't want to be proud, but cut off from the presence of God. You don't want to be judgy. Come on. But never having that life transforming power of God actually in you. What I loved about this account as I'm bringing this to a landing is that this sinful woman in Luke 7 actually made the effort to track Jesus down. This was before Find My iPhone apps. Hello, come on now. 
right? This was before GPS, where she could track people down. She had to go around town asking people, have you seen where Jesus is? Oh, get away from me, unclean woman. Till she finally found Jesus in the Pharisee's house. It would have taken her probably a better part of all day to find that Jesus was there. David tracked the Ark of the Covenant down, fought some battles to rescue this temporal dwelling back in the city of David every six paces. Worship, sacrifice, danced. Worship, sacrifice, danced. His whole entourage did that. How long it would have taken to get from the Philistine garrison all the way back to this, but he didn't, it didn't matter to him at all. Third conviction of the posture of encounter. Humility is this. I'm willing to make the effort to draw near to him because he's worth it. Because he's worth it. He's worth it. I want to preach into this for the next few minutes. Humility says, I want to make an effort to do this. I'm going to wake up early and pray. I want to go without in this season of praying and fasting. I'm going, to do, I'm going to come out cold in the cold at 6 a.m. praying. Me. And I'm going to do this, Lord, because, you, because you're worth it and because I need you, God. Yeah. If you ever think to yourself these words, and I have many times, when it comes to the things of God, ever said this to yourself in your head, oh, can't be bothered. It's not apathy, it's pride. It's getting real quiet now. I'm going to talk to the drum kit because the drum kit won't write me an email. YK is a good boy at hotmail.com. Um, if we ever think to ourselves, can't be bothered. It's not apathy, it's pride. Our pride says, my convenience my agenda, me, is more important than you. Pride also says, I don't need you. So I'm going to do this on my own. Figure this out on my own. I'm better off without you, God. I really don't need to pray. I really don't need to fast. I really don't need to press in. I really don't need to find you, God. Imagine this immoral woman saying, oh, why bother? Or David saying, I'm king now. I could delegate. That's good leadership. I could delegate some of my captains to go and get the Ark of the Covenant. After all, it's just a temporary dwelling. And just bring it all in. And as it comes, I'll just hang with Michael. We can just job done, move on with the other kingly tasks I need to do. But that wasn't the heart of David. Come on. Humility understands this, that every breath that I breathe is from the Lord. Come on, I want to come back to that heart which says my posture of encounter. Come on now, church. I want to be able to say, Lord God, everything that I do is because of you, Jesus. I want to come back to that posture of humility where it says, God, my every breath in my lungs is because of you. Every beat of my heart is but by your grace. We have a decision in this season of encounter. Do you want to be Simon the Pharisee or Michael of the balcony or you can be the sinful woman in Luke 7? Come on, are you out there? Or King David. Out of all the people that had the right to not want to do what they did, which is to enter into and face the humiliation of a pharisaical voice, all too hard, or the fact that he was king. Other two people that were entitled to not bring the posture of humility, they actually brought the posture of humility. This is what I feel prophetically for us as a church in the coming season. It's almost like the church is reaching a Tipping point. I didn't speak about this in the 9 a.m., but it's like the church is reaching a tipping point. I really sense I'm hearing God say this now. It's reaching a tipping point that if we continue to play church, we'll eventually walk away. There is no middle ground. It's either we come as 
this woman. Prepared to wash Jesus' feet with our hair. The posture of humility. If the church doesn't come back to that place where our ego is subservient to him and we come under his lordship, the day is going to come where the heat is going to be too much and we will walk away. My prayer for us today is that we come back to the place where we're posturing ourselves in a way that we say to our own soul, Jesus, you alone on the throne of our heart. Can we give God... Thanks for listening to the Nations Church podcast. For more info, please visit nationschurch.com.